This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the people I had a great time talking to last year in our Black and Latinx representation in comic book series was Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. Edgardo is a writer and graphic designer who created the female Puerto Rican superhero Labore Kenya in the graphic novel Reconstruction. Reconstruction was plenty popular, and Edgardo is taking all the proceeds and going, putting it towards development efforts in Puerto Rico, and we're going to talk about how it's going. Nice to see you, Edgardo. Thanks for having me, man. It's kind of cool to physically be <laughs> in the studio. The last interview we did, I was actually in a box in uh, New York City and talking to a, a screen. It's kind of cool to actually physically be in front of you. Yes, this is Navy Pier. Welcome to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, man. It feels good to be in Chicago. Uh, you know... Uh, how do you go about deciding where to give the money away to? Because a lot of people I've talked to who give money away say, well, that's harder than raising it. It was easier to make the comic book than it was yeah, to uh, to give it away. It's very true. I actually have to give all of that credit to my partner and my wife, Kyung. Kyung Jung Miranda came up with this idea. Because initially I was going to do, I think, the same thing everybody does. Just find that check and give it to a large nonprofit and let them handle the um, the distribution. Um, she actually thought that that would be a wasted opportunity. And I uh, had to agree with her and, and, and let her um, take the leadership on this. And she, she pretty much told me, you know, there are so many smaller organizations on the island, across the island, that ever since the hurricane hit, and even before the hurricane hit in September of 2017, have been doing significant work, not only in the rebuilding of the island, but just amazing work in general. And she said, why don't we actually find out who these groups are? You know, how can we, like, directly give them the, the money? And I, you know, I told her, I was like, that's going to be a lot more work because it's just easy to just cut the check. And she said, you know, it's nothing compared to the amount of work that's being done every day to rebuild Puerto Rico. And so that conversation just kind of, like, grew into an exchange with my mentor, Iris Morales, who was already on the ground. She was already on the ground in Puerto Rico, um, visiting um, grassroots organizations across the island. And when she heard that Kyung wanted to do this effort with the money we raised from our anthology, she said, well, you know, I already have uh, a starter list. I got all these organizations, their contact information and their emails. And she she pretty much told my um, my wife and I that we needed to be um, aware that oftentimes small organizations on the island don't always have 501c3 status. And meaning they don't have a, an, an official not-for-profit status, but they're still doing the work regardless. Well, how did you narrow it down? Did you end up having a bigger list than you thought? We had a very long list. Uh, unfortunately, we were we found ourselves having to look at a list that was uh, accessible only by the technology that was available at the time. Meaning, many organizations we weren't able to reach because they were still in, in blackout. Yeah. As we know, you know, Puerto Rico was in a blackout for 328 days, meaning like that That was like, it took 328 days before the last town got electricity. Obviously, throughout the year, organ, um, municipalities were receiving electricity, but it took almost an entire year before the entire island had full power. So many organizations that um, Iris Morales had found for us, we weren't able to directly connect with. And also, there's also the idea that, you know, we're new, we're getting an email. You're getting an email from us, and you know who is this? They're trying. Is this somebody from Nigeria that's trying to get me to put money into their account because they're a prince? So there's a little bit of that that we've had to, you know, kind of like um, 
introduce ourselves. That's why it's important to have conversations with, um, with, with you, for example, because it gives validity to the work that we're doing so that people are aware that we're uh, a legitimate group that's actually um, creating these opportunities and resources for these organizations. But yeah, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to reach out to these groups. And when we finally were able to, Kyung actually came up with the idea. She said, look, we already have a superhero. Why don't we actually use like all the qualities that embody in, in this character to use it as a kind of like a gauge to determine who gets these awards? So and we have an Afro-Puerto Rican superhero who <laughs> uh, is a college student who uh, studies environmental and earth sciences, and she is also very aware of uh, economic and um, environmental justice. So we wanted to kind of like find something to reflect that. So she said, look. Let's find organizations that work directly with women, that work with children, that work in the arts, that provide services and education, that celebrate Afro-Puerto Rican heritage, that are actually doing work with the wildlife and the environment in Puerto Rico. And it just kind of like worked itself out, really did. I'm talking with Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. He's the creator of La Boricana, the female Puerto Rican superhero, and he donated all the proceeds from the uh, graphic novel reconstruction uh, to different organizations. Well, let's let's talk about a few of them because I, I was impressed at the variety. I was going to say because you you didn't stay in all one kind of development mode. You went all over the place. And, you know, you mentioned the environment and you, you're helping with an organization that's restoring coral reef and things like oh, that. Oh, I love them. Oh, my gosh. Um, Correlations. I actually even love the name. Correlations, <laughs> like Coral Reef. They're a group based out of um, the small island Culebra, which is off the east coast of uh, Puerto Rico next to the sm- other small island of Vieques. And they work directly with, um, with young people. And they're teaching young people how to, like, revitalize the coral reef by actually taking them out into the water to do the work, to, do, to be educated. And I had the honor of presenting them with one of our $10,000 grants, and I presented it to two high school students, which was amazing to see these young people. And, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. I have a background as a teacher, so I couldn't help myself. I was like, so what are you going to do in the future? What are you looking forward to doing? And they both were... We're going to college. We're going to study biology. We're going to study um, ecology. And they are looking forward to becoming scientists, which just really excited me to see this kind of like passion from young people in the sciences that were actually inspired by real life, real work. You donated to a lot of organizations or a couple organizations that had to do with children, uh, literacy foundations, yeah. uh, Boys and Girls Club. The Boys and Girls Club is an amazing organization. Although it's a, it's a brand that many of us recognize here in, in the United States, in Puerto Rico, they are actually um, work as an autonomous organization. So their operating budget comes from whatever they fundraise for directly in, in Puerto Rico. And one of the key things that they wanted to do, which really attracted us, is they wanted to create an arts program um, in Loiza, which is one of the historically um, black um, municipalities in Puerto Rico, which oftentimes gets under-resourced. Unfortunately, there's a lot of colorism and prejudice in Puerto Rico. But it was really amazing that a group like Boys and Girls Club took this grant to say that they were actually going to go to Loiza and develop these programs to not only like encourage young people to activate themselves culturally, but also kind of like reinvigorate the love and the recognition of their of their Afro-Puerto Rican heritage. And in keeping with your character, she is a black character. So yes, she's a black Puerto Rican character. So it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's just <laughs> like, it's really cool when we hear back from a lot of organizations, like one of the other grantees is actually one of my close dear friends and mentors, Dr. Marto Murillo Vega, who's a professor at, at NYU. But she retired, and I say that with air quotes, to move to Puerto Rico to start her own organization called Afro Corredor, which is about 
stimulating the local economy and tourism in, and, and culture in the town of Loiza. And she recognized it and is always telling people that she got the La Borinquena grant. And it's really cool that so many people are saying that they, they received the La Borinquena grant, which is, to me is just trippy because it's a comic book superhero that I created just, <laughs> I, I, just three years ago. Actually, just like, uh, like three years ago in March is when I came up with the idea of actually doing this comic book. And here we are in 2019. And it's become not only a, a, a celebrated character, but it's become an opportunity to provide true philanthropic work to organizations and groups that really need it. And uh, there's a Labore Kenya in the Smithsonian now? Oh, wow. yeah, that's trippy. So the uh, National Museum of American History in um, Washington, D.C., put together an exhibition um, they call it the superheroes. In that exhibition, you have original comic book art and comic books from Marvel and DC. And, and also you have La Borinquena, which is the only comic book in the collection that's independently published. And this May, which I'm incredibly excited about, they're going to be including the La Borinquena costume in their exhibition. And presently they have the original Superman costume worn by George Reeves from the television show The Adventures of Superman. They have the Captain America shield that Chris Evans has used in the Marvel films. So it's just an amazing um, space to be in as, as, a, as a comic book creator to see how well-received my character is in American institutions such as the Smithsonian. And even in New York City, the American Museum of the American Indian all has a, currently has an exhibition on Tainos, which are the indigenous people of Puerto Rico, and La Borinquena is part of that exhibition as well. Cool. And if people Very go to the cool. Labori Kenya website, mm-hmm. they can see all the organizations that you've donated yes. to. Yes, actually, there are nine. Nine organizations that we gave to this time. And uh, if uh, it's la-borinquena.com. And if you go to our website, you can see all the organizations. And what we deliberately did is that we actually put a, a nice write-up of each one of these organizations along with their contact information. So many people are reaching out to them directly. In fact, I just recently gave a talk to a group of students from Michigan State University, and this fall they'll be visiting Puerto Rico and actually doing outreach work with some of the organizations that we gave grants to. And it's amazing because one of the key things that we wanted to do was not only give them the resources to continue to work, but also kind of use the buzz that La Borinquena is getting to give them attention so that people can come become aware of the real heroic work that's actually happening on the island. Is there another organization you want to tell us about, one of the uh, organizations you're giving well, to? Well, one of, one of the ones that I'm, I'm also um, happy about was Arecma, which was Unumacao, which is in central um, Puerto Rico because that area was incredibly hit hard when Hurricane Maria um, landed in Puerto Rico. And they actually created uh, a library, which is beautiful because uh, there was, there was a, a need for a space that would really uh, promote literacy and engage young people in the culture of literacy. And I actually uh, reached out to uh, contacts of mine at Simon & Schuster, and they made a donation of books. And they also uh, have La Borinquena graphic novels as well in the library. So it's just beautiful to see how well-received the work is. It's one thing to give them the grant, but in creating a library, organized of that organization, Arecma, they wanted to actually share with their young people, their students, the hero that actually gave them this space to begin with. The last time we were talking, we discussed how Hurricane Maria changed the conversation on Puerto Rico. Do you still feel that change of conversation and that momentum? You know, we're seeing presidential candidates. A couple of them went to Puerto Rico. But I don't know if Puerto Rico is going to be a an issue, you know, uh, that's really prominent in the campaign. It may be. We have... Um Bernie Sanders, who's announced his candidacy again, and uh, Mayor Carmen Julian Cruz is actually a part of his team. 
And that's an incredible announcement to have made in, in support of Puerto Rico because never in a presidential campaign have they ever asked anyone from Puerto Rico <laughs> to actually be a part of it. I mean, I was just having a conversation with a, with a taxi driver, um, Jesus, on my way over here. He's a, a, an immigrant from El Salvador, and I was saying to him that, well, for the last 101 years, Puerto Ricans have always been American citizens. Even my great-grandparents are American citizens. But... Legally, we have always been treated, if we're born on the island, as second-class citizens. We can't vote for president. We can't vote for a, a congressperson in, in, in Washington that can actually enact or vote on any form of legislation. So for Sanders to include Mayor Cruz in, on his team is revolutionary in and of itself because he's acknowledging that there are 3.5 million Americans on this island that are part of the rest of this American tapestry that we call our nation. And if you look at the totals population of the island, it, it, it actually t- adds up more to n- than many states combined here in the United States. And unlike other Latinx groups, when Puerto Ricanos move to the U.S., we can vote immediately. It's literally just a change of address form we get from USPS. So there are no forms, no waiting in lines for us. We can enact our voter power instantly. That's pretty wacky, isn't it? It's wonkers. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a superpower. It feels like something out of a comic book. You come, know? come to come to the come to the U.S. and vote. vote. <laughs> exactly. You are a part of the U.S. Exactly. <laughs> Just move. Vote. Yeah, yeah. It's trippy. It's really trippy. So yeah, I think what's really amazing is that although Hurricane Maria happened a year and a half ago. The conversation still continues because in the midst of Hurricane Maria, you also found Puerto Rico was in its 100th anniversary centennial of the Jones Act, which gave Puerto Rico its American citizenship. And there's so much history that was already involved. Obviously, we're, we're well aware of this debt crisis and how that's affecting Puerto Rico and how that led to a humanitarian crisis. But what's also interesting is the, um, the discourse. Oftentimes, people who were in support of an independent Puerto Rico were the only ones that would use keywords like decolonization. Now you have people who are in support of statehood for Puerto Rico, like the current governor of Puerto Rico, Governor Rosselló, who are literally using the exact vernacular. All we must decon- Right. We must decolonize Puerto Rico because it still means the same. It's either like decolonize Puerto Rico to make it a complete autonomous nation or to make it a complete um, state of the union or to give it a true status of, of commonwealth because it's never even had a true status of being a commonwealth. And I think most importantly, before you address even the statehood or the uh, independence, I think we need to address the Jones Act because that is really costing Puerto Rico close to like um, a billion dollars a year in terms of like the actual impact that it has, real cost that it has on, on Puerto Ricans on the island. How this recent case that was ruled by Judge Swain from New York City, it will now look at increasing sales tax on the island up to upwards of 15 percent. So that, so that Puerto Rican citizens are going to be given the burden of paying back this debt. So it's, it's just really crazy. So, yeah, it's, it's, Hurricane Maria was kind of like, I often say, the storm that blew away this kind of like, like gauze that was kind of like masking everything to kind of reveal the, the true reality of what's happening there. But it hasn't ended up with any real restructuring of the thing yet. I mean, you're going to get more taxes. There is, there is no. Right. I think what needs to happen is... And I think what Sanders did by asking Mayor Cruz to be a part of his team is like a step in the right direction. There needs to be more discourse between Puerto Ricans on the island and uh, American politicians here in, 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 the, in the mainstream U.S., right? Because oftentimes they exist separate of one another. Like the, the, on the island, they're demanding and they're kind of lobbying for certain things, but nobody on Capitol Hill is actually responding or even listening to them. And what we need to do, I think, as American citizens living here in Chicago, New York City, L.A., wherever we are, is 
That's our responsibility. I think we have a responsibility to our fellow Americans to say we need to address this real issue and what does decolonization mean in the 2020 election. I think it's long overdue. It's been 100 years, technically 101 years, and I think it's long overdue to really make that one of the key platforms of this presidential campaign, like where will a candidate stand? They come to Puerto Rico, ironically enough, even Hillary Clinton came to Puerto Rico during the primaries even though we can't vote for her, which is hilarious. <laughs> you know, she, she campaigned in Puerto Rico. We voted in the primaries. Honestly, I always come up with this metaphor. It's like being invited to a gala and you get to pick out the menu and you go to the gala and you sit down in your tuxedo and you're forced to sit on your hands because you're not allowed to actually eat the meal. So it's trippy in that way, you know. But here we are, you know, and hopefully this comic book that I created continues this conversation. And that's really what comic books for me come from. They really come from that space of like addressing these these inequities in our life. Uh, why do you think more comic books don't do that? I mean, you're, you, I mean, you came from a little bit outside the comic space yeah. to jump in. Well, comics used to do that, man. I mean, like uh, Stan Lee did that when he first introduced uh, Black Panther. Uh, Kirby did that when he was one of the artists that introduced Captain America. I mean, oftentimes people try to say, oh, keep politics out of my comics. But Captain America was literally knocking out Adolf Hitler on the cover of his of his comic book. You know, I think what happened was once comic books became corporate, because comic book companies were independent publishers. They were completely independent. People always forget that. But, you know, um, you have a major corporation like Disney or Warner Brothers that own these characters. So now they're just... Brands, honestly, they're brands. I like to like, like, kind of like equate it to how in the '80s um, people equated Adidas sneakers with Run DMC. Now in the 2000s, people equate Adidas sneakers with Pharrell Williams, and it's the same sneakers. So it's like they're brands, and and that's how they're being handled. The cool thing about being an independent publisher is I actually get to be on a talk show like this with you, and I can actually talk about issues beyond the the full color artwork in my comic book and how that really affects and engages real-life issues. Uh, what's the future of Laboricania Comics? What do you got going? Well, right now, um, I'm on this national tour speaking at universities. Uh, next week, I'll be speaking at UPenn and Ursinus College, and I'm looking to be going to Carnegie Mellon as well as other universities. Nice. Um, I'll be going to the Bay Area in, in May for their book festival. It's my first time there. What I'm doing is kind of like what we're doing here. I'm just The future is to continue this conversation, to use the comic book, to engage people in this discourse about what it really means to, to address the decolonization of Puerto Rico. I'm also hoping that this, this tour helps us continue to raise money for our grants program. And so far, we've raised close to a quarter of a million dollars for our grants. So I'm really excited about that. Congratulations on Thanks. everything you're doing. Uh, this is a terrific effort. Thank you so much, Jerome. Thank you. Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez is the creator of La Boricana, the female Puerto Rican superhero. He donates the proceeds from the graphic novel to Good Efforts in Puerto Rico. And it's great to see you and knock him out. Thank you, bro. Palante. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the reaction to the Mueller report. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Special counsel Robert Mueller delivered his report to Attorney General William Barr on Friday. Barr revealed that Mueller's closed the investigation without more charges. No further indictments are under seal. There was no criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia. The attorney general also concluded that there's not enough evidence to move forward with obstruction of justice. Many observers have said it was the best day yet for the Trump presidency. With me is Yoni Applebaum. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the impeach cover story for the March issue, and I talked with him a few weeks ago about what would happen when the Mueller uh, report dropped. Good to talk to you again, Yoni. Hey, it's nice to be with you. Um, Was this the best day yet for the Trump presidency, the best thing that happened uh, so far? Well, I think it was a really good day for America, and and, um, I would actually argue that it was a, a pretty terrible day for the Trump presidency. Um, and, and that's because what we heard yesterday was from the attorney general. We don't yet have the Mueller report itself, but the attorney general said uh, that Robert Mueller had not found sufficient evidence to charge the president or, or any of his associates with conspiring with Russia and had opted not to make a prosecutorial decision about obstruction of justice. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good day for a presidency when, when a federal prosecutor issues a report and, and says, um, gosh, I didn't find enough here to charge with. Um, but it's very good for the country. None of us should want to see a sitting president of the United States charged with a criminal offense. That would be horrible. Um, now, what does this do to the uh, the ideas like yours? You wrote the cover story, uh, Impeach. What is that? How does that change things? Does that mean, well, there is no impeachment is off the table? People should not um, think about think that through anymore. No, just the opposite. I think what we got yesterday was a really bracing reminder to a lot of people who had deluded themselves that this was never going to be a matter of criminal prosecution. Uh, Robert Mueller was charged to look at this like a prosecutor, and uh, we have at least his conclusions as relayed by the attorney general uh, that looking at what happened between the Trump campaign and Russia, uh, he decided that there was uh, not – he did not find – uh, enough to charge criminal conduct. We don't yet know what he did find. Um, certainly, there's enough in the public record for us all to be profoundly disturbed about what happened. Uh, it, it may be that Robert Mueller decided that that he could not prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. It may be that he concluded that, that there had been nothing untoward. Um, but there's enough evidence in the public record to question the president's judgment and conduct during the campaign. Certainly, he he broke with all norms and conventions of, of conduct. Uh, and then with respect to obstruction of justice, uh, it sounds quite different. Um, Nobody has said that the president uh, did not um, commit obstruction of justice. What Attorney General Barr has said is that looking at this as a matter of fact and law, he has concluded uh, that the president, um, that there was not sufficient evidence to establish that the president committed uh, obstruction of justice. The, the difficulty there is is that Barr has been on the record for years arguing that a president definitionally cannot commit obstruction of justice uh, through uh, official acts. And so we don't yet know what happened here. Was this Robert Mueller suggesting that, that the charge be made? Was it Barr um, accurately summarizing or, or inserting his own judgment? Um, but probably what we're looking at here is a reminder that that Ultimately, these are questions that should all along have been contemplated by Congress. Congress opted to outsource this investigation to Robert Mueller to go along with what the Department of Justice was doing. And that was never the proper venue for consideration of this president's conduct. 
Well, it, it, you know, does but the report itself is going to take the wind out of the sails of Congress. Um, last time we talked, we were discussing what Adam Schiff was saying, and he was trying to round up support from Republicans for, uh, you know, an, an honest conversation about this and things like that. Uh, that doesn't seem likely to happen now. The report uh, buttresses the Republican side, gives them enough cover that they can they can stick to their guns. Well, that's true today, at least uh, with respect to Russia. Although uh, I should again emphasize, we haven't seen the report. We have no idea what's in there. We don't know how damaging the revelations will be. Um, the question of impeachment is is not simply whether or not the president committed criminal acts, uh, nor is that the judgment that the voting public will make in 2020. Um, uh, my conduct didn't rise to the level of prosecutable crimes demonstrable beyond a reasonable doubt is, isn't much of a campaign slogan. So if there is damning information in this report, it could still uh, badly damage the president and, and revive the topic uh, to the extent that the report itself is largely exonerating. Uh, that will be different. But we have to actually read the report, which is why people on both sides of the aisle from uh, Susan Collins to Chuck Schumer are calling for the release of the full report. And, and I think it would be wise for us all not to get uh, too far ahead of ourselves. The other thing to bear in mind here is that the question of impeachment was never really about Russia per se. Uh, Democrats invested a great deal of faith in the Mueller investigation, um, and Robert Mueller appears to have acted in, in a professional way. Uh, but he only was ever supposed to examine a very small percentage of, of the problems with this presidency. Uh, he was not looking at the president's lawyers saying that the president had directed him in the commission of campaign finance crimes. He wasn't looking at the emoluments clauses. He was not looking at uh, a variety of other official acts this president has taken in office. Democrats weren't looking at them either for the most part. Um, they decided to sit on their hands and wait for the Mueller report to be issued as if Mueller could uh, absolve them of their legal and constitutional duties to investigate the conduct of this president. Uh, I think yesterday they woke up and were suddenly faced with the reality that having punted on that for some months, um, if they actually want to take any of those things seriously, they're going to have to do it themselves. I'm talking with Yoni Applebaum, senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the impeach Donald Trump cover story uh, for the March issue of The Atlantic. And I, well, so if Congress wanted to move ahead and do this itself... You know, it seems like Speaker Pelosi wasn't really gung-ho before we know what we know today. Um, they're, they're not going to do it. They're going to probably stick to their guns and, and go for the um, election in 2020. The, even the timeline of this is so long that, um, you know, it would take forever. Well, that might be right. I mean, the, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson um, came to a head nine months before uh, he, he was due to, to leave office. Um, certainly, we've been in this territory before. There's sort of a catch-22 where folks say, well, um, you should give a president time in office and, and wait for things to, to pan out before you reach judgments. And then uh, if you do that, folks will come back and say, well, gosh, you know, the, the voters themselves can render a judgment. The, the risk that Democrats are taking here is that they're thinking of this as a narrow political question. What's good for our party's chances in 2020? Uh, I would encourage them to think of it instead as, as a matter of constitutional responsibility and duty. To the extent that the president is able to do a variety of things, uh, and Congress would still have to establish that he had done them, um, in office, and Congress does not move to hold him to account, but instead throws that to the voters, 
because it does two things. It establishes that any future president can act in similar ways without facing consequences. Uh, and that should worry folks on both sides of the aisle. If, if you're um, happy with the broad agenda that Donald Trump has set, you should nevertheless be alarmed that any of his Democratic successors could act in office as he has acted. Um, and the other thing it does is it presumes that, that voters are going to take your side of it in 2020. Uh, Democrats made that bet in 2016 and they lost. And there are lots of reasons to think that when voters are faced with a binary choice, they are not asking themselves, has this man faithfully discharged the duties of, of his office? Is he fit to serve? They're mostly asking themselves, which of these people do I hate more? Um, that negative partisanship is now the dominant force in American politics. And so it's a heck of a gamble to throw this back out to voters in 2020 and say, uh, we've decided not to hold the president accountable for his conduct because we're making a political bet that will be better for our reelection chances. Um, please prove us right. Uh, you know, that that's not actually a message about duty or responsibility or the Constitution. It's it's a narrow partisan calculus. and And has a, a fair chance of backfiring again, as it did last time. Do you think that the media took a very serious hit here? Um, I noticed that Glenn, Glenn Greenbaum has been out on Twitter, and Glenn Greenwald, rather, is, is out on Twitter, and he's been uh, talking about uh, this was the saddest media spectacle he had ever seen, and he's saying that, oh, Rachel Maddow is the Judith Miller of this whole escapade, and Judith Miller... Um, was the New York Times reporter who was trumping up the weapons of mass destruction things for the Iraq war. Um, is there that kind of a – is there a reckoning that is going to come with the media? Is the media damaged? Donald Trump can can tap dance all over that all he wants now? Well, I'm not usually a big fan of talking about the media as a, as a coherent entity. There's a big gap between, say, cable news punditry and, and the reporting that you'll find in, in major newspapers and magazines. Um, I hope there's a media reckoning. Um, lots of people downplayed the charges here. Uh, and in fact, we now have um, from the attorney general and deputy attorney general further confirmation that something the president has never admitted is true. Russia attempted to subvert our election and in many respects succeeded. Um, we have the president's campaign chair, his deputy campaign chair, his national security advisor, a foreign policy advisor, uh, all pleading guilty to or being convicted of federal crimes. Um, there are many ways in which uh, a variety of partisan media outlets and, and mainstream outlets downplayed the, the severity of these charges. Uh, in some sense, the big news to come out of the Mueller report as Barr has summarized it so far, is there's nothing else, right? So, so all of the bombshell revelations that if they'd come in one big burst might have taken down a presidency in, in a previous administration were dribbled out over the, the previous um, 18, 19 months. And uh, there were no additional surprises, uh, at least that we know of, in, in that final report. Um, but that shouldn't in any way stop us from going back and, and taking stock. Uh, and, and it is disquieting to me how many outlets and how many um, pundits like Glenn, Glenn, uh, excuse me, like Glenn Greenwald are at this moment taking victory laps, having denied the severity of the scandal all along when faced with a report which says that, in fact, uh, what happened here was extremely serious and, and ought to be dealt with. Does the report give Donald Trump uh, what he needs to not just hold on to his ex supporters, but to make a case to other people that I, you know, I have been attacked unfairly. I am the victim. His 
his whole uh, mo is to 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 kind of blow that thing up and and kind of get people on board with him being the victim of things. Is that something that is now just going to happen all the more? I don't think that Donald Trump needs any help or excuses for blaming other people for his problems. Uh, he has done this his entire career. He does this whether or not the facts substantiate it. Uh, in this case, what I see is a president uh, who has suffered one of the greatest self-inflicted wounds you will ever witness in American politics. He fired his FBI director to shut down this investigation and then went on TV and said as much. Um, if, in fact, what the report has established is that there was no collusion, and, and we don't know that yet, um, we're waiting to see the report itself, um, then having obstructed justice to prevent the investigation of something which was not, in fact, a crime um, is, is sort of a remarkable thing to have done. And, and so while Trump himself will certainly play the victim here, he always plays the victim. He always blames others for his problems. Uh, I, I look at this and, and see a president who took a remarkable series of unprecedented actions um, to obstruct the progress of an investigation uh, and probably should have done, at least based on the top-line results we have now, what his attorneys at the time counseled him to do all along, which was to offer his full cooperation, trust to the professionalism of the Department of Justice, uh, and try to put it behind him as quickly as possible. Uh, <laughs> so um, he's it, so the scenario where the Trump uh, campaign and administration looks uh, incompetent, is that, um, is that enough for for people to to impeach him over, if if that's the general milieu that he's running in, like he's foolish, uh, is that uh, is that what we've got? Well, the founders deliberately set aside what they called maladministration as as a grounds for impeachment, um, and so simply being bad at his job is is not enough. And I certainly wouldn't make the case that 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 was impeachable. Um, he is demonstrably bad at this job. He is historically bad at this job. Um, but it is his right to be bad at the job, and it is up to the voters to decide whether or not they wish to grant him a, a second term. Um, the things that loom out there is, as potentially impeachable offenses are the other potential crimes under which uh, he, he is currently uh, under investigation for from um, offices like the Southern District of, of New York, um, which include um, financial issues and, and um, campaign finance violations. Uh, but then also a, a range of his conduct. And one way to read this letter from Barr is that with respect to obstruction of justice, uh, we now know that Robert Mueller opted not to make a, a prosecutorial decision. Uh, I don't know how to read that, and I'm waiting to see the report itself to understand what that means. Uh, one way to read it is how Barr appears to have read it, which is uh, he kicked the can down the road, and, and so Barr could, could close the book on that. It's also possible, even plausible, that what Robert Mueller meant there was uh, this is really properly for Congress, that, that the question of how you hold a, a president accountable for a potential crime is you present all of the evidence as clearly as you can and you ask Congress to act accordingly. Yoni Applebaum is senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the impeach cover story on the March issue. Thanks a lot for joining us today and talking about the Mueller report. Coming up after the break, we'll have Monica Eng, and we'll learn a, tooth, a thing or two about milling grain. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For decades, American bakers have been happy to use bags of flour from the grocery store. But a new breed of baker has been seeking out freshly milled local organic grains for their breads, pancakes, and cookies. And many say it makes a difference for the local economy, the local soil, and their health. WBEZ's Monica Ang recently talked to an Illinois farmer and miller who has upended the status quo. Thanks, Jerome. So last weekend, I went down to the Good Food Festival at the UIC Forum, where folks from all over the Midwest were meeting to talk about sustainable agriculture. Now, you've probably heard a lot about people growing local and organic produce in the Midwest, but grain, not so much. So to understand this trend, I talked to folks growing and milling just about 90 miles south of Chicago and Ashcombe. They're former Harold Wilkin and Miller Jill Brockman Cummings. Harold runs Janie's Farm, and Jill runs the mill at Janie's Farm. I started by asking them to tell me what the mill at Janie's Farm is all about. The mill at Janie's Farm is an organic stone ground um, mill. So everything we produce comes from either Harold and Ross Wilkins Organic Farm, or we purchase it from other organic farms in the region. Then we mill it into flour and cracked grains, and sometimes we sell it as just whole kernel grains. Harold... Tell me, what do you farm and why do you farm it? We farm 2,900 acres organically in Iroquois County, mainly the staples of wheat, corn, and soybeans. But we raise specialty grains, so it it might be six different kinds of wheat that we raise. Uh, Then also we raise different types of heritage corns. The products that we raise on our farm go directly to consumers. And can you tell me the story of um, how you got into growing these kinds of things and growing them organically? Jill's dad actually was a neighboring landowner and wanted his farm to go organic. And um, he found out that I was looking at organics. And so I transitioned 30 acres in 2003 for the Brockman family and Two years later, I took my whole farm to organic. And then five years ago, we thought about how we could increase the viability of our farm. And we looked at the fact that we're in such proximity to Chicago that we should be doing something with our grains. So we decided to build a flour mill. Okay, and uh, where does the name Janie's Farm come from? Janie was our oldest daughter who passed away 17 years ago. I had looked at organic grain farming, well, organic farming for 10 years, and she knew that. And um, it was right after she passed away that Herman uh, contacted us. So I kind of feel like I've got this advocate on the other side who helps connect things. And what does it take to go from farming conventionally to farming organically? Well, you have to change your mindset to where... How can I put something on this to kill it or to cure it? uh, To how do I work with the soil to make it healthy so that it will grow a crop? And so it was a totally different mindset. And um, it takes three years to transition. And it took us as farmers another two years to figure it all out. But now we're on a path. Well, we're regenerating our soil. I know that Iroquois County isn't the 100% organic farming county. (laughs) Do 
have you experienced anyone being like, hmm, what's he doing over there? Um, yes. When I started out, there was basically zero acres of organic. And now uh, Iroquois County has about between six and 7,000 acres of organic. There are some younger people that have come back to their family farms and told their parents that the only way they wanted to farm is if they could go organic. And so that's happened. There are a few farmers who've seen what we're doing and have implemented uh, going organic on their own. And why is it important to you? When I was deciding to do this, there was one, there, one of the factors was that my son told me he wanted to farm, and he was 12 at the time. And I thought, you know, I've been a conventional farmer up to that point, and, I, you know, I've, I've handled the pesticides, the insecticides, and I thought if he never has to handle a pound of chemical, that I will be successful. And uh, he never looked back. Never looked back. <laughs> the only acreage that we farm is either organic or farms that we transition for other landowners to organic. And so, so back when you were thinking about this, what were some of the attitudes about it, you know, among your neighbors? One neighbor in particular came over and said uh, that I was farmer suicide. Basically, like nobody was going to do anything with me. I would be, you know, like ostracized in the neighborhood and that I would never rent another acre, acre of farmland. And that's kind of seen as a way of being successful in Iroquois County is partially how, do, how much you farm. Well, the opposite's been true. So why do you guys have a stone ground mill nearby? Well, for one reason, there was no other stone ground mills in the region, and it was, I think, an opportunity for us to get healthy, good product to the consumers. Stone ground flour is much healthier than roller milled flour for lots of different reasons. Um, First of all, we start with an organic grain, which is number one healthier because we don't have herbicides, pesticides, fungicides on it. And then when it goes through the stone milling process, you actually crush the germ, which is the center of the grain that contains all of the amino acids and some protein and minerals. And so that gets spread out throughout the flour. And then you also crush the bran, which is the outer coating of the wheat kernel. And we sometimes do sift off some bran for our flours, but it's never all removed. So ours is much healthier for that reason as well. And then we um, don't add anything to our flour, and most of it, nothing is removed except for maybe a portion of the bran. So that is a wholesome product that our body can recognize and digest, and it's full of nutrition. So you guys have a whole bunch of bags here today at the Good Food Festival at UIC Forum. Um, When someone buys this and they bring it home, is there something they're going to notice about it? Yeah. Yeah, it has flavor. If you buy just a bag of five-pound bag of flour in the store, that was the first thing my wife noticed because she went from using, like, a conventional flour to using our stone-milled flour, and there's such a taste difference. You can actually taste the grain instead of just being a powder substance in your, you know, that you add things into to make the flavor. Oh, and I was just going to um, say as well, 
is when you add water to our flour, it turns brown. Even if it looks like it's white in the bag, it turns brown, and it's because of the germ in there and the little bits of bran. Theoretically, it's, it hasn't been sitting on a shelf for three years after it's been milled somewhere. What's the advantage of freshly milled? Well, there's live enzymes in it, um, so that's also you know, more nutrition and, and easier for bakers, especially bakers who use sourdough that reacts very well with our flour. Um, the other thing is our flour has a shelf life. Uh, so we say like six months from the time I mill it, and we put that on in the bag, and we also recommend um, refrigeration or freezing it because it does have the oils in it, so um, it could, could go rancid if it sat on your shelf for three years. It definitely would. It wouldn't be any good. So if you can mill flour and it's a fresh product, it's definitely healthier for us. Mm-hmm. And so if someone's saying, well, why should I get wheat that's from, you know, within 200 miles of Chicago versus uh, grains that are from far away? Well, first of all, the conventional practice now is is that in order to get the wheat to die so that it can be harvested, uh, they're spraying Roundup or glyphosate on the wheat. So you're getting that herbicide on the kernel that's going into the flour. Ours has none of that. And you're also contributing to the local economy. So if Harold's growing the wheat and I'm milling it and I'm selling it to folks in our area then that's the whole grain chain right there. And it's just, I think, better yeah. for the environment. Um, you know, our, our carbon footprint's much smaller. I've seen that there are some bakers in Chicago who are especially using your flour. Who are they, and um, why do you think this demand is growing? Well, again, I think it's just the um, consumer is being educated. Like Harold said, we're realizing that Roundup is in all the grains and almost everything that we eat and drink, even in beer. Um, it's found. So I think people are starting to realize that it's not maybe, I mean, maybe some people are, you know, people who have celiac disease are gluten intolerant, but a lot of people think, oh, I'm just sensitive to gluten. I think the sensitivity is to uh, the Roundup. <laughs> That's my own personal belief, but I think this the science is coming out that that, that is true. They're also real, there's kind of a, a sourdough bread resurgence in in this area, it seems like people are really excited about their bread, and it does taste, you know, really just good. excellent. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah. So Ellen King at Hune, um, one of our best yeah. customers, and has some really great products from scones and and muffins and stuff to, you know, country breads with sourdough, and uh, then we also work with Publican Bread here in Chicago. Flour. Flour. Yeah, P-H-L-O-U-R, up on the north side. All right, so what about for the average consumer? Let's say I've become a sourdough fanatic, which I have. Um, How do I get this grain to try, and what should I be trying for my sourdough? So we sell quite a bit every week online that we ship out. A lot of people like the heirloom varieties, um, especially the what we call Mackinac, which is the turkey red wheat. Our high-protein flour comes from Glen Wheat, which is a hard red spring wheat. And we have an artisan blend that is half hard red spring wheat for the high protein and then warthog wheat, which has a little bit lower protein and is the hard red winter wheat. 
Did you say warthog wheat? Yes. Yes, <laughs> warthog. <laughs> Some people call it hogwarts. Yeah, but that's no. right. We get, we get calls for hogwarts. you got any of that herd hogwarts uh, wheat. <laughs> so, um, that's a blend. So the protein levels um, down a little bit, but people who bake like baguettes and things like that don't really need the high high protein. So. You do hear a lot of people say, you know, I've given up bread. It just does not agree with me. I'm so sensitive to it. And then I have heard anecdotally when people use uh, organic grains, local grains, some of the heritage grains, and they're fermented for a long time, yes. um, that, that they don't react to them. Have you been hearing anything like this? Yes. Yeah. Celiac disease is a totally different, you know, situation. But for people who have IBS... It seems like they can eat our flour through their breads or quick breads, and it doesn't affect them like a regular bread would. I think it's, again, it's the organic grain, so what's not on the grain and the flour. And it's also what we do not add to our flour, which is no you know, dough enhancers, no bromate, it's not bleached, you know, there's nothing added to it. But I think you're right, like the sourdough, the process of breaking down, you know, the gluten, the gluten uh, before baking. Absolutely. I've had so many people say, I haven't been able to eat bread in 10 years, and I went to Hewn, and I got a loaf, and I had no problem. All right. So if people want to know more about the flour that you guys produce, where should they go? Well, our website is com. And right now, if you're anywhere near Hewn, they also carry our flour. So if you're in Evanston near Dempster in Chicago, you can go to Hewn. And if you're in Chicago on the north side near Lawrence and Western, you can go over to Bacon Miller. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I cannot wait to try this flour. Well, thank you for the interview, and we're hoping that you're satisfied, too. Yes, and thank you for baking and, and being a sourdough fanatic. <laughs> That was WBEZ's Monica Eng talking to organic farmer Harold Wilkin and Miller Jill Brockman Cumming of the mill at Janie's Farm in Ashcombe, Illinois. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence with Amy Webb. She has a new book called The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Several of the tech titans are in China, and China has some different ideas and different ways of going about artificial intelligence. We will compare how China and the United States are doing on artificial intelligence tomorrow on Worldview. And it was fun to record it at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs before a live audience will have some questions. Questions from them as well. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.